to Hotel Bar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. Welcome back to another episode of Hotel Bar Sessions. I'm your host for this week, Rick Lee. And as usual, I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Dr. Lee Johnson and Dr. Charles Peterson. How are you all this week? I do not have Omicron. (laughs) I don't know if it's Omicron or Delta, but I am COVID positive. Oh, you know, it's the times we live in. Thoughts and bourbon to you. Yeah. Negative thoughts and bourbon to you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Much appreciated. Greatly appreciated. Well, so Rami, having heard about your diagnosis, Charles, he's keeping his distance. So why don't you tell me what you're drinking and what you're ranting and raving about? Rami, keep your distance. I'm going to go with a Mount Gay Silver, Three Fingers Neat. I've been drinking that with other concoctions over the holiday season, but I feel like just a straight up neat Mount Gay pour will do me just fine. My rant is, and this is appropriate to my earlier comments, my rant is COVID. I unfortunately have been infected, despite what I believe to be my best efforts at remaining safe, masking, social distancing, but I have tested positive. And fortunately, I'm grateful that I'm feeling fine. It seems to be asymptomatic, but it is certainly very emotionally stressful. Everyone out there, please be careful. As much as you can, limit your social interactions and let's just all bear down and be careful. I I don't want to see anyone else infected or ill. So that's my rant this week. Now, my rave is, and I guess this is a bit of an ambivalent upside to being in isolation, I watched a really, really good documentary on the classic Los Angeles comedy club, The Comedy Store. It's streaming on Showtime. Comedian and director Mike Bender, I believe is his name, is Binder or Bender, it's B-I-N-D-E-R, is directing it, and it's four or five episodes, and it's really absolutely amazing. It's a great homage to the comedians of the 70s and 80s that made comedy such a huge national popular phenomenon, at least stand-up comedy. Richard Pryor, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Roseanne Arnold. Just a really great discussion and also a look at where comedy is contemporarily. So if you have time, and I hope you have time outside of having COVID and being in isolation, but if you have time, (laughs) take some time, go on to Showtime and check out The Comedy Store. Nice. I actually saw that documentary series and I agree with you. It is absolutely fantastic. I mean, what a history in that place. You're right. Everyone that has had such a huge definitive stamp on modern stand-up comedy has come through those doors or stood on those stages. So, Lee, Rami, uh, since we've been exposed to Charles sitting here at the bar, he's not coming anywhere near. So I'm going to go pick up Charles' drink where Rami left it way at the end of the bar. In the meantime, why don't you tell me what you want and what you're ranting and raving about? So I would like a a shot of ivermectin. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, I would like a fourth booster shot. No, I'm just kidding. Okay, so I'm going to stick with what I had last week. I would like a shot of Buffalo Trace. No ice this time because I'm trying this theory about whether or not the ice opens up the flavors. So I'm just going to have a shot of Buffalo whiskey. Nice. My rant this week is also Omicron. 
Mostly because our dear co-host and the one that we love the most, and honestly, Rick, let's admit it, the best of the three of us. Yeah, for sure. uh, Our dear brother, (laughs) Charles Peterson, has Omicron, and I'm a little bit worried about him. I know he's hanging in there and he's doing okay so far, but if I could just say that I'm really worried about Omicron right now because I don't think that we're ready for the impact that this is going to have. We know that it's more transmissible than Delta was. It doesn't seem to be as severe in terms of hospitalizations and deaths, but it's occurring during flu season, which could be really harmful for the hospital system in general. And I do think that I'm worried that our response to Omicron, which is let's not shut down, let's plow forward, let's persevere, let's be resilient, that our response to this is setting us up for being completely unprepared for the next variant. I know that some people think that because Omicron seems to be milder, that the next variant might be even milder, but it's just as likely that the next variant will be even more transmissible, more deadly, and vaccine resistant. So we we just can't sleep on COVID, you guys. We got to stay on top of it. Sing it, sister. Call me the canary in the coal mine. (laughs) 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 All right. So my rave this week is a TikTok phenom. I think he's also on Instagram. His name is Josh Zilberberg. I I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I love this guy. I'm going to play you one of his TikToks. So I do have good news regarding this Omicron variant, and it is that the virus has now become so toxic that naturally I've caught feelings for it. And according to science and history, anything I've ever developed feelings for does go shortly afterwards. So it's looking like we're near the end of the pandemic. Thank you. (laughs) I know. I do too. I mean, it is a mastery of deadpan that is almost... Supernatural. Can I just play one more? Can I? Sure. Sure. They say what you surround yourself with is a reflection of who you are, which explains why all my furniture is from Ikea, since I'm also extremely unstable and my online photos do not accurately represent what I look like. Thank y'all. <laughs> <laughs> I love this guy. And I mean, of course, everybody is hooked on to the, okay, thank you. Right. But there's something about not just the delivery, which is genius, but also the content of his posts are really great. They just seem to capture these moments. I read an interview with him where he said, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic and the earth is being destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. But also I can't get a date on Saturday. Where's the, you know, where's the content for me? You know, and I just, I feel like what I need in this historical moment is this guy. So I just want to encourage everybody to find Josh Zilberberg on TikTok and Instagram. He is fantastic. All right, so Rick, what are you drinking and what are you ranting and raving about this week? Hey, Rami! (laughs) (laughs) Rami's like walking over in his E.T. hazmat suit. You know what? At this rate, dude, you may just have to climb behind the bar and and pour your own drinks. (laughs) Rami just may duck out. It won't be the first time I did that. Rami asked us to please text our orders next time. Um, (laughs) It's not a bad idea. 
Since it's just after the new year, I, as I normally do on New Year's Eve, turn to my old standby, the French 75. And so I'm going to continue. Nice. Unsurprisingly, my rant this week is COVID-related. It is masks. Or let me be more specific, both the lack of masks... I'm in Florida. There's not a whole mask in the whole fucking state. (laughs) I mean, everyone in my family has a suitcase just with N95 masks. Which they call chin straps. (laughs) If only, Lee. By the way, my younger sister and I were called weirdos coming out of a place wearing our masks. Oh, man. Well, I mean, we got to separate those two because you are weirdos. Yeah, we are weirdos. But they're calling you weirdos for the wrong reasons. Yeah, he doesn't even know us yet. (laughs) He hasn't done his research. The the other thing mask-related that I'm ranting about is I spent a lot of time and energy finding cloth masks that matched various outfits of mine and so on. Right. And yes. now, like, yes. people put your cloth masks away because they ain't doing shit with Omicron. Yes. Oh, my God, Rick. I have such a strong mask game. Yeah. I'm so sad that I have to go back to the medical mask. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, people out there, why don't you start making surgical masks or N95 masks with the same creativity we were making cloth masks a year ago? Please, I would really enjoy that. My rave this week is manatees. Water dinosaurs? <laughs> Well, they're also appropriately named sea cows. So I'm in Florida this week. I'm now in the Keys, and there's a channel out in the back of the house where we're staying. And today, like six manatees were just hanging out. They are so gentle. I mean, they're massive, massive things, but just so incredibly gentle. And there was a little one that was incredibly cute. So I'm raving about manatees. Nice. Very nice. Very nice. Hey, embrace nature while it's here. (laughs) Charles, you and I should embrace Rick while he's here because he is in Florida. I I know. I think you're a weirdo for going to Florida, but okay. That's just my opinion. Well, the only reason why we did was because they weren't letting us out of our rental and we would have lost a shit ton of money. Uh, so so he basically has the same approach to COVID as the CDC. He's like, <laughs> right. he's like how much will it cost right. us to be safe? Right. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, Charles, you're in the hot seat this week, I believe. What are we talking about? We are talking about something that is near and dear to your present circumstance and I think relevant theoretically to this time of year. I want to talk about tourism. I know this is a time of year where the snowbirds fly south to Florida and to Arizona. And it's also the time of year where we see certainly across the Caribbean, the rise of carnival season. And I wanted to talk about what are some of the dynamics of tourism. And, And that's really based in the conversation opened up by the writer Jamaica Kincaid in her great short essay, A Small Place. And she talks about the tourist really in a Fanonian's way, thinking about what it means to be a tourist. What are the power dynamics between someone coming from the global north to the global south for these pleasure adventures? What does it mean for the existence of the tourist turning the citizens or the residents of a place into a a native, as it were, in that same sort of Fanonian Mm. way? 
What are the yeah. geopolitical implications of that? What are the economic implications of that? And what are the ways in which tourism, in order to appease or please the tourist, erases or distorts or contorts the lives of the people in the lands they get visited? So I wanted to talk about that. I thought it was very relevant. And I've certainly done a little bit of writing and research on the issue. So that's what I'm curious about talking about today. Charles, I've been thinking in terms of tourism and, and the way you set it up shows the pretty close links between tourism and colonialism. And that got me thinking on the one hand about, you know, the British Grand Tour and how the British historically suck as tourists because they'd go to Italy and they'd have tea and crumpets and blood sausages or whatever English people eat. But you were pointing out in terms of Trinidad and Jamaica, where tourism has had a really devastating impact. And I'm wondering, do you see such a close link between a colonial past and the ravages of tourism? Well, certainly. And I think, you know, your use of the term ravage is interesting because people argue that tourism is, for many of these countries, the main economic support. Like sure. having visitors come from North America or from Europe or, you know, now Asia as well, and them plowing their currency into the economy, they're creating jobs, they're creating industries because of the collapse, in many cases, of the former cash commodities that right. were the foundation of the colonial experience. So I think that's an interesting question, but I think there's a definite overlap between this colonial path, because what we're talking about is a power disparity. We're talking about experiences, institutions that facilitate and allow for the North American or the European, and now who is in the global South becomes a bit more blurry with the mm. rise of economics, power of certain countries within Asia. We can see that there's a dominance that's been already laid through history or pre-existing economic relationships, right? If we think about American imperialism in the Caribbean, if we think about, and though Puerto Rico is a part of the United States, Puerto Rico is subject to the same types of economic and, and social and cultural domination. Antigua, which is the country that Jamaica Kincaid is writing about, is subject to the same North American white economic power. So tourism is inescapable from a colonial background and a colonial path. Just to be clear, I meant ravage in relation to, well, two things. But one thing I had in mind was, what relationship does one have to one's own culture when now that seems merely a performance for outsiders who are there for tourism. What happens to the traditional forms of Jamaican music, for example, when it now is a performance for tourists? It almost borders on a certain kind of minstrelsy. And so that's what I meant by like, tourism does have this kind of ravaging effect. And then you pointed out the other side I was thinking about, that an economy that could exist and, and in many cases did exist no longer can exist because now everything has to feed the tourist beast. Exactly. And I think you make a great point in terms of what happens to traditional cultures. It seems to me that the tourist vision, the tourist gaze has certain types of expectations of who the native or who that culture is. And in order to keep the tourists happy so the tourists will continue to return, the tourists will continue to plow money into the economy, those in the tourist industry decide it's to the advantage of the country 
to allow for that gaze to dominate. Mm. And let's be honest, in many cases, that gaze, that idea, that vision of who the native is comes through stereotypes, comes through limited understanding, comes through an ahistorical sense, comes through privilege, comes through anticipation of a certain degree of welcomeness, right? Everybody loves white Americans or so white Americans want to believe. And what it forces the tourist industries to do is to lock into a sort of an amber right. for these cultures. And it becomes, for lack of a better term, I think it becomes this open air museum mm. where items are placed on a particular pedestal to be observed, to be unchanging, to be taken out of a historical, cultural, social dynamism. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Earlier when you were saying that all tourism has a kind of colonial impulse, my first thought was, well, all of us know that the United States is a tourist destination. For all 50 states, tourism is a significant part of the state budget every year. But as somebody who lives in a tourist town, so I live in Memphis, uh, who lives what? in a tourist town, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> I wish I could slap you in this podcast. No, but as somebody who lives in a tourist town, it occurs to me that even when, for example, very wealthy tourists from very wealthy nations like China come to Memphis, which... To, to me, I would not describe as colonial in its impulse. Mm. What they're seeing, the product that they're consuming, is itself a product of colonialism. The way that Memphis has become a tourist town is, one, because of its music, and two, because of its place in the larger civil rights history of the United States. The way that Memphis has established itself as a tourist destination is in relation to the white gaze, exactly as Charles was saying before. And so in that sense, is created as a tourist spot through a kind of underlying colonialist white gaze impulse. So it doesn't matter who the tourist is in that sense. They become a part of this larger project. No, I think that is a very fair characterization because really what we're talking about, and we can use the language of colonialism, though I am someone who my understanding of history, right, post-Civil War, is that the South to some degree was colonized, mm. right, necessarily so by the North and that certainly African-Americans are subject to that. And we could also talk about the various types of racial and cultural dominances within regions, within the African-American population. So I think that that's a, an accurate way to describe it. But ultimately, it's about a power disparity, right? It is, it's about the privilege and the resources to be able to leave, as, as Jamaica Kincaid describes it, the boredom, the doldrums of one's own life. And to go to a new space where one has greater power and greater advantage than you would have in your home space and become a new person. So you leave Long Island and you travel to Jamaica for a week during spring break. Whereas in Long Island, you're just an average Joe. But in Jamaica, now you become this person who is relatively rich. You become a person who is greeted and welcomed and whose needs and desires are catered to. You are someone who is always within the context of the tourist site, shown the happy, smiling native. The various games that get played on your behalf and, and the, the construction of a place of ease and relax that's there just for you on the backs of the indigenous people. And that, too, is a type of privilege and power. And I think that's to me, that also reinforces the idea of the colonial underpinnings of this thing we call tourism. Let me ask you a question, though, because I think that I might 
need some clarification on what exactly tourism is. Because I think that in just like the normal everyday pedestrian understanding, tourism is travel for pleasure. So not business travel, not necessary travel, it's travel for pleasure. And what Charles was just describing, it seems to me that I can imagine ways in which, for example, if I traveled 90 miles in any direction, I could find some small town in southern Missouri, in Arkansas, in Alabama, in Mississippi, that I might want to, I don't know, hike some mountains or camp or whatever. Obviously, just by being able to go to that town for pleasure, there's a certain asymmetry in power. Like I have the means to go to that town to camp or to hike or to travel or whatever. But I'm not sure that what I'd be doing there is observing the, you know, like... (laughs) The natives. (laughs) Expropriating the native culture. Like, I'm not even sure there is an indigenous culture in some of the places that I can imagine that are within 90 miles of Memphis. Are you saying there's not a real America? (laughs) (laughs) But, but Lee, okay, so I think I smell what you're stepping in, but it seems to me that (laughs) we've, or actually the two of you have brought together, I think, at least three elements that I'm hearing as belonging to what Charles called the tourist gaze. Okay. One is a certain kind of minimally indifference, if not affluence or, you know, being above. The second is a demand that things be entertaining. And the third is that things be easy. So, Lee, when you describe going to one of these towns to hike a mountain, the first thing that came to my mind is, well, now we talk about ecotourism. And Mm -hmm. so maybe you don't go to expropriate or observe the native culture, but you do have a certain relation to then nature that you're going to gawk at with the tourist gaze. And even if you are camping, you want a minimal level of comfort. Not that you're going glamping all the time, but like you don't want. Oh, I, uh, I do not camp. I don't either. Listeners. In fact, when you said camping, I almost vomited. Listeners, if it does not have AC and Wi-Fi, I am not sleeping in it. <laughs> but so it's this indifference slash affluent superiority. It's the demand for entertainment and a demand that things be easy. Because here's an example I was thinking of. I was about to say before that no one travels to a different culture and says, you know what? I really want to go to a funeral. But then suddenly New Orleans popped into my mind. But then I started thinking like, okay, what is the difference in the experience between the family members in that New Orleans funeral and the tourist who goes and gawks at it? Right, who wants to enjoy the second line. But I, I want to say this about Lee's point, you know, and echo, I'm glad you brought up ecotourism because that is a very interesting point. But even in your desire just to hike the trails of a mountain, there's still a support staff there hmm. whose job is to facilitate a particular experience for you. And one of the interesting things that Jamaica Kincaid talks about is 
the example of the disparity between the tourist and the quote-unquote native is the fact that in few cases does a native have the same resources to travel to the tourist homeland and behave in the same way that the tourist behaves in their homeland. Okay, but if I could, okay, so I think that is a very important point, that we can talk about the people who have the means and the resources and the power to tour, to engage in travel for pleasure only. And the people who don't. That is a larger structural analysis that deserves attention. But I, I want to push back against what you guys are calling ecotourism, which is like me and my partner drive 90 miles into northern Arkansas to have a day-long hike and either camp there and drive back or just drive back. That to me is not ecotourism. And whatever demand that we be entertained is a demand that we're making only to nature itself, which I do not think is colonialist, right? Like that would be like saying every time I look at the sunset that I'm being colonialist, which I don't think is true. No, no, I, I, I'm not saying that, that you're making that demand on nature. I'm saying that even if you go to a national park, there is someone whose job it is to facilitate a certain experience. Yeah, but I'm talking about a different experience. There is a way for me to travel for pleasure and it not involve any demands on any other human beings. Now, it may fall under the umbrella of ecotourism in the sense that I have to drive there or fly there and therefore I'm destroying the planet and doing that. That's a different issue and an important issue because, of course, one of the main problems of tourism is that it destroys the planet. But I want us to separate... The way that Charles is talking about tourism, which is, I think, mostly descriptive of international intercultural tourism from travel for pleasure, which I just kind of want to retain the possibility that there are responsible ways to do that. Lee, you can go to Cancun and still be cool. But I'm literally not talking about, like, you guys are totally missing my point. No, I'm, I'm not, not I'm talking not, about no, going to Cancun. I, I was exaggerating for comedic effect. <laughs> yeah, um. no, but like, but I mean, I, what I'm saying is, is that like, Eastern Tennessee is one of the largest stretches of the Appalachian Trail. Right, right. Yeah. The Appalachian Trail is a whole thing. Yeah. It is a whole thing. There are people who hike the full trail every year. It takes about six, eight, sometimes nine months to do it. There are, of course, stops along the way, but the whole ethos of hiking the Appalachian Trail is that there are no hotels. Everyone who does it provides what everyone else who does it needs. And so there's this idea that this is about, I mean, it's so weird because I'm going to use experience a lot, experiencing the experience of this nature experience. <laughs> Over a long period of time, it requires a lot of work. It requires a lot of cooperation. It does not require exploiting other people or nature at all. And as a matter of fact, that's a central part of the ethos of these trail hikers. But it is still a tourist adventure. Well, let's say that that is the exception to the rule. I, d I think it is. But what I'm trying to say is I think maybe what we need to do is separate what Charles is talking about, which I think is really concerning and something that has real deep and abiding problems from tourism writ large, or maybe not tourism writ large. Like maybe that is tourism writ large, but tourism in this specific instance. 
travel for pleasure that is not exploitative, colonialist, or in some significant way, earth-destroying. Hey, Hotel Bar Sessions listener. We really enjoy doing this podcast, and really we would do it for nothing, and in fact we do. But it's not without its own costs. Those bits are not free, and they reside somewhere. And so we're asking for your help. We have a Patreon page. You can go to www.patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. And there you will find a number of levels at which you could subscribe. For example, we have the barfly menu, $4 a month. That's hardly a yingling for Lee. And that includes early access to all new episodes. And we'll even shout out your name once in a while. We have the shots level at $8 a month. That includes that, plus a fan request, a monthly Ask Me Anything, and access to exclusive content that we're going to offer on Patreon. Then the designated driver level, that's $12 a month. That includes all of that, plus some swag, our hotel bar sessions coffee mug. The dude level, $20 a month, all of that. Plus, you could have a guest spot on one of our afterthoughts or even on the podcast. And finally, we have the Medici level. That's $50 a month. And that includes all of that, plus anything you can think of, as long as it's legal and within the bounds of morality. Remember, our morals are a little loose. So once again, go to our Patreon page. That's www.patreon.com slash hotel bar sessions. We really appreciate your support. If you like what you're hearing, then please think about helping us keep it going. As we mentioned, in terms of beginning to break apart and think about tourism existing in various ways and modes and for different reasons, one of the forms of tourism that I have come into contact with, participated in, but also examined to some degree, is what people are starting to call dark tourism, hmm. which is yeah. people choosing very specific sites, usually of historic trauma, and visiting those for example, those who will visit the death camps in Germany or, or Poland. Or the National Civil Rights Museum. Right. Right? Because we do have the Civil Rights Museum in, in Alabama. But I'm saying the National Civil Rights Museum is a death tourism site because it's the site where Martin Luther King died. Like people come to that right, museum right, 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 to right. see that balcony. Right. right. That's not like a National Civil Rights Museum, which is a museum. Yeah, exactly. Or people who travel to plantations or people who travel to the old slave castles off of the coast of West Africa. Because I try to think about to what degree does that fall under or do these sites and these experiences fall under the same framework that we were talking about in the previous segment, and also linked to questions of commercialization. But also there's a real attempt, I think in some cases, for commemoration. And certainly the National Civil Rights Museum is a perfect example of that, what's taking place in Alabama in terms of the museum dedicated to the study of lynching and so forth and so on. So I think, once again, to build upon what Lee's previous point about how we need to expand and think about in much more complex ways, I think this adds to our conversation. 
But what's interesting about, and I'm most familiar with the infrastructure and so on surrounding the death camps. And by the way, there were no death camps in Germany. There were concentration camps, but none of them were there for the sole purpose of producing corpses. And I, I knew someone who used to be on the board of advisors for the museum at Auschwitz-Birkenau. And at that time, they were thinking a lot about, you know, how do we talk about this? How do we prepare exhibits? What kind of signage do we have? And, and they were really reflective. Since then, with the new right-wing assholes who have been in power in Poland for the last five years, a lot of that's gone by the wayside. But still, that doesn't prevent, in a way, a lot of people, a lot of locals who are hustling around there and providing, you know, authentic Polish meals on the road to Auschwitz. And so all these things that belong to other forms of tourism often creep up in conjunction with and around these sites of, of so-called dark tourism. I have really mixed feelings about this. And I'm just going to go back to the example of the Civil Rights Museum, which is in Memphis. So many people probably know the Lorraine Motel is the motel in which Martin Luther King was assassinated on the balcony. It was an actual operating motel. And in 1988, it was decided that it was going to be turned into a museum, but there were still people living there. And there's this woman, Jacqueline Smith, I really encourage our listeners to look up her story. But Jacqueline Smith refused to leave. She was forcibly removed from the premises. She was literally carried down the stairs and set across the street from the Lorraine Motel. And she put up a handwritten sign that said, eviction empties motel where Dr. Keene died. And she has been there since, since 1988. I met her this past summer. Been there in that spot across the street from the Lorraine Motel, which is now, of course, the National Civil Rights Museum. Here's my ambivalence. I've talked to Jacqueline Smith many times. She is an amazing person. She has a deeply compelling story to tell. Nevertheless, as much as I am convinced by her story that we should not commercialize sites of trauma and turn them into, as Charles said, locations for dark tourism, I also have been through the National Civil Rights Museum many times, and I know that literally, you know, I mean, I don't personally know the literally tens of thousands of people who have gone through it, probably hundreds of thousands of people in the last 30, almost 40 years, but I know the power of that museum. And so I have really mixed feelings about what Charles is calling dark tourism which we could maybe just as easily call the commercialization of trauma. But there is something to being in those spaces and having that story framed and told to you as someone who can't just walk up on it and understand everything, framed and told to you in a way that museum curators are literally trained to do, that I think is culturally important. I agree with you. But who are the forces and the entities that facilitate and support this construct? So an example is the first time I went to Ghana, study abroad in the mid-90s, and I visited Cape Coast Castle, which was a, a former slave castle, major site 
for the exportation of enslaved Africans. And there were these huge banners because a few years before, the Smithsonian Institute of the United States had gone over and in partnership with the Ghanaian government, had decided to create a much more formal presentation and discussion of the site. One of the banners that I encountered when I first went there, draped at least 20 feet long down the side of the castle, said Cape Coast Castle, crossroads of people, crossroads of trade. Yeah. I mean, crossroads of people is maybe the euphemism of the century, That's right? That's burying the lead like a motherfucker. And you go in, and it, it's certainly, you, you can't ignore the history of slavery there, but it is so smooth and so polished and so architectured in such a way as to diminish any type of, I, I think, of emotional response to it. I remember seeing what I believe to be European tourists taking action shots and not selfies because no one had cell phones with cameras then, they were taking the type of shots that they might as well have been at Disney World and really finding great offense to that. Now, granted, the emotional center of power for that whole experience and for that site is the door of no return, which, thank God, was left untreated. There was no shiny walkway, no red carpet or anything like that. But it was still deeply problematic for me in terms of thinking about who are the forces behind it? Why would the United States invest in this particular way? Why would the Ghanaian government facilitate this type of presentation? And what does that mean for gaining the true understanding of the role of this site and what happened there in the way that Lee describes it? And, and I think you're rightly extremely important to communal and national consciousness. This becomes a difficult question for me in two directions. One is that there are moments of history that need to be recorded They are location-specific, and that these places serve as important markers that we should all know and be aware of. And unfortunately, or however we want to put it, we travel there to see them, to experience them, to learn from them. And then the other difficult side for me is, you know, you got to kind of admire the hustle of... People who are around these places who will then go and set up a restaurant or a hotel or whatever because they got to make ends meet and they've now found a way to do it. And it, it slowly seems to always make its move toward more and more kitsch. I mean, I want to separate between the people, the vendors who are trying to make a living within these sites around this, this tourist site. So right. I, I, I actually do not have a problem with that. Right. I understand the, the economics of this situation versus what are the forces and the entities that inform, that shape for a certain purpose, a particular way of thinking about or a particular mm. presentation of these sites. Now, certainly, and things have changed in the, God, almost 20, almost 30 years since I first went. And arguably at that point in history, there was a very different relationship to the memory of the Atlantic slave trade among the average Ghanaian or the Ghanaian government versus the ways in which diasporic Africans would think about mm. that phenomenon. It felt at that point, and this is simply my subjective thinking about it, it felt like the Ghanaian government was not quite really invested in telling the powerful emotional story that a diasporic African would want to see and felt right. to be necessary but was more willing to see it simply as a way to attract Western tourists and Western dollars to, at that point, a travel destination that was that was marginal to most Westerners. 
So that's why I found it to be very problematic. Still necessary. I was glad there was some degree of commemoration. But the story that was being told, I found to be a little disturbing in how it was being told. And I've seen that in other places. Tour guide at Robin Island has a lot of jokes on the bus when you get off of the ferry and then you drive toward the prison that held Nelson Mandela and other members of the ANC. Right. A disturbing amount of jokes to keep it light. And I think that is what, going back to Jamaica Kincaid, that's what she's trying to say. There's something very real and something very organic and something very necessary that has to be discussed and, and understood and viewed is now being flattened and distorted to make the tourists comfortable. Because despite you're coming to a dark history site, you still don't really want to be disrupted. You still don't want to have a real, truly existential confrontation there with the meaning of this place vis-a-vis one's own life. Hey, listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the hotel bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their all-fair thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philos spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. Now, back to our conversation. I'd like to bring us back with a quote from Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place. So I'm going to read this and just leave it there hanging for you to respond to. Jamaica Kincaid writes, quote, That the native does not like the tourists is not hard to explain. For every native of every place is a potential tourist, and every tourist is a native of somewhere. Every native everywhere lives a life of overwhelming and crushing banality and boredom and desperation and depression, and every deed, good and bad, is an attempt to forget this. Every native would like to find a way out. Every native would like a rest. Every native would like a tour. But some natives, most natives in the world, cannot go anywhere. They're too poor. They're too poor to go anywhere. They're too poor to escape the reality of their lives, and they are too poor to live properly in the place they live, which is the very place you, the tourists, want to go. So when the natives see you, the tourists, they envy you. They envy your ability to leave your own banality and boredom. They envy your ability to turn their own banality and boredom into a source of pleasure for yourself. Yeah, that's the heart of it. That's that's the disparity that I, I think I've been trying to get to and think about and articulate in our conversation. This is what makes tourism, for me, inherently, at least certain types of tourism, and we can certainly set aside the question of ecotourism from this for now. I think it's something we can return to. But at least that type of experiential tourism, the Cancuns and the spring breakers and the snowbirds and, and that type of life, I think that's really the heart of it. People can go to another place and be a new person in ways that those who live in that place do not have access to the same possibilities or resources or experiences. 
So I'd like to just ask you, Charles, about something that I mentioned to you before we decided to record this podcast, which is I said to Charles, I was like, we definitely have to talk about these evangelical youth groups that (laughs) go on mission trips to South America, to Africa, et cetera. And they say that they're doing mission trips, but they're really just vacations for these kids or these teenagers. Jamaica Kincaid's quote that I just read from A Small Place That describes, to me, that the best. And I find this really offensive, these mission trips that are actually, as you described it earlier, death tourist trips, right? Let's go watch some poverty porn. Mm. That's what it is. Mm. I am very critical of missionaryism, period, and certainly these missionary trips. I think I can separate them from being simply, hey, let's go and watch poverty porn, which I think it's there, but I think there's also this presumption of a spiritual death as well, which motivates people to say, well, let's go into these countries and convert people to Christianity, Hmm. or let's go into these countries and convert people to our particular brand of Christianity. I'm not sure if I would put that strictly, and I think it could be negotiated, strictly in the category of tourism, if we think about tourism as travel for pleasure and not travel based on labor or work. Because I think in the minds of these missionary groups, this is work. This is the Lord's work that they're trying to accomplish. I mean, I agree with you, but let me just put a fine point on this, is that any church that's scheduling a missionary trip abroad for its youth is not going somewhere where missionary work needs to be done. They're going somewhere where their kids are going to be safe where they're going to have an experience that is beneficial for them. So I, I don't think that the really the primary motivation of the trip is the gospel, is spreading the good news. I think the primary motivation of the trip is an edifying experience for the tourist. And I don't think that they would call them tourists. Right. I think they would call them missionaries, right. right? But like I think that what makes them tourists is that the trip is meant to be edifying for them. And what makes them not missionaries is that the primary mission of the trip is not for it to be edifying to the people that they're encountering, but to them. So you're saying any missionary that comes back from the Caribbean with long braided hair with beads, right. <laughs> they, they have missed the point. But I will say this, that I, and I do agree, ultimately I do agree with you, but I think also what's taking place, if part, and once again through the Jamaica Kincaid formulation, if part of what makes it tourism is the ways in which the tourists can see themselves in a certain way through the eyes of the native, I think that's there. Because I certainly I think that the missionary enjoys seeing themselves in the figure of a savior in the eyes of the people they're there to save or convert to Christianity. But the interesting thing about that quote, Lee, from Jamaica Kincaid, is when she says that it's the tourist who comes to enjoy being seen by the native as someone who has the privilege to be able to be a tourist. It's a really nice flip in that passage or a turn in that passage that you read from, I want to go somewhere and relax and enjoy the nice weather. And then, you know, oh, look, I discovered this really great kind of music. It's called reggae. Nobody knows about it. And now look at my hair is in beads and and braided. 
but then I also get a tremendous amount of enjoyment as being seen as someone who has the privilege to travel. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And I think it's really important for us to focus on the way that communities that are reliant on the economy of tourism are restricted in their language for describing that experience, even that reliance. I mean, later in the book, Jamaica Kincaid says, for isn't it odd that the only language I have in which to speak of this crime is the language of the criminal who committed the crime. Mm. <laughs> and I think that when you think about the way that it's hard to, you know, if you're living in a tourist town, even in the United States, not to mention abroad, if you're living in a tourist town, it's very hard to talk bad about the tourists, mm. right? Except in the terms that the tourists, I don't know, demand, I don't know, like set down. And here's where I try to be careful and I think it may be, arguably, it has been said, this is one of the mistakes that Kincaid makes, which is that she speaks in this absolutist language about what's taking place in terms of the relationship between the tourist and the quote-unquote native, in terms of the tourist experience and structures being over-determining. And I'm always very curious about the ways in which local voices do find ways to be critical of or do maintain dynamic cultures that continue to exist beyond the amber frozen idea that the tourist has. And certainly one of the perfect examples of that is the great Antiguan Calypsonian. His name is King Short Shirt. Yeah. Huge figure. But he himself in his classic album, Ghetto Vibes, has a great song that's critical of tourists and how they come and try to exploit Antiguans during carnival season. So the song is called Tourist Let Go. She says she come down from Halifax. And she never see carnival So she come to join in the bacchanal She want to go jump and play She must just like an Antigua She want to go jump up And join in a juve jam Join in the greatest vehicle of expression Jumping in the steel pan Dancing in the sun She want to romp, she want to dance She want to jump, she want to prance She want to man, she want to jump So I'm hesitant to say that there's no way by which the tourists or those who are working within the tourist industries have limited room to push back. I think there's a world outside of the fishbowl in which the tourist exists that these people can speak and think and express. There's a great example a few years ago at, I think, Colonial Williamsburg, where they recreate 18th century Williamsburg, Virginia. And for a long time, there's very little discussion or acknowledgement of the fact that this was based on the enslavement of Africans. And so they finally began to integrate that more into the regular programming. And they have an annual Christmas show. And I think they would have African-Americans come and talk about the dinners and talk about the rituals of Christmas at that time. And one year, a group of the African-American actors started becoming very specific and very detailed about what life was like to be enslaved during Christmas on this particular plantation. And so you have these yeah. examples where people who are working within this framework begin to push back against the dominant narrative that's being presented. I think one thing that we haven't raised yet is the relationship, at least in the sites we've been talking about, so Antigua, Jamaica, Cancun, the way in which the crushing debt that these nations are living under, international organizations force them to open their markets to goods from abroad, 
that are then destroying the local economies that existed there before such that tourism becomes the only viable mode of economic survival in many of these places. Yeah, and not just to be the quoter of Jamaica Kincaid here, <laughs> but like also Jamaica Kincaid says, isn't that the last straw for not only did we have to suffer the unspeakableness of slavery, but the satisfaction to be had from we made you bastards rich mm is also taken away from us. Right. There's actually a very good documentary directed by Stephanie Black, I think maybe 1999, 2000, called Life in Debt, which looks at the effect of IMF and World Bank policies on Jamaica specifically, but the narration of the documentary is taken from Jamaica Kincaid's A Small Place. So the overlap of what Rick brought to our attention and what we've been talking about is perfectly joined in that documentary. Yeah, and, and what what's interesting about it is the way in which that rat bastard from the IMF who just looks evil, like you look in his face and you're like, I don't know what you're up to. <laughs> I do not know what you're up to, but it ain't right. It's just not yeah, right. right. He looks like the slimy lawyer from SNL. Yes, yes. Nathan Thurm, who's always smoking and sweating. That's what he looks like. <laughs> right? <laughs> but what's interesting is the way in which he couches all of this, on the one hand, in moral terms, so debt is a kind of sin, and you've, what's the word, uh, you've been spendthrifts and just giving your money away, and well, we'll lend you some money, but we're not going to allow you to then use it on frivolous things like education or healthcare. Right. And in the meantime, by the way, you're going to have to open your borders to goods flooding in from outside. So you have all these moral terms on the one hand, and then all, all of this how would I put it? Looking down at these countries who got in the economic conditions they were precisely because of colonialism. And the combination of that moralism and that smug superiority just made me want to punch that guy right in the face. <laughs> right in the kisser. <laughs> <laughs> Charles, this was a really interesting topic. I want to thank you for bringing it up and helping us through this issue. Did we leave anything out? Do you want to add something? Bring us home. Well, I want to thank you both for allowing me to talk about this. My goal to make everyone that hears this a little bit more uncomfortable when they decide to go on a wild spring break trip or go and stand aside and watch a second line in New Orleans is accomplished, I hope. But no, in all seriousness, I think these are very complex issues and I think they have to be unveiled because it's so easy to think about tourism as a very innocent, as a very helpful, as a very beneficial and as a, a valueless endeavor. And being able to talk about and think about the real deep patterns of inequality and privilege and historical baggage that go along with all of these things, even done in the best of intentions. Right, I want to know more about King, so I'm going to the National Civil Rights Museum. Even with the best intentions, it's fraught with very problematic dynamics. So thank you both for having this conversation with me. But if I could, can I just add one more thing that I think that we missed? And obviously, it's too late to talk about it in any depth. But it's really important to note that the greatest detriment of tourism is to the planet. 
almost 10% of global emissions are directly attributable to tourism. And I know that both of you guys travel a lot more, both domestically and internationally, than I do. And I think this is something that people really have to think about. Every single time you fly transnationally, you are destroying the planet. And every single time you drive cross-country to see something, you are destroying the planet. And, and it's not to say that these cultural and social and political issues are not also important. But to me, I think it's really important to note that the primary danger of tourism is environmental. Is this, is this a pitch for your new um, Meta World goggles that you got oh. for Christmas? <laughs> no. <laughs> Are you getting money on the side from... Okay, so since you mentioned it, it's very interesting <laughs> because there are many VR, so virtual reality apps that allow you to visit other places in the world, visit museums, visit cities, visit historical sites, etc. in virtual reality. A lot of people are saying that this is never really going to catch on because, of course, there is this very famous, I don't remember the exact name for it, but there, there's some kind of lag that is inherent to virtual reality mm. that, you know, like when you turn your head in actual reality, there's basically no difference between what your eyes see and the kind of internal inner ear sense right. of your spatial recognition. Unless you're drunk. Yeah, right. right, right, as we all are, right? But in virtual reality, there's that lag. And so people are like, yeah, but so it's not ever going to be perfect. Of course, it's never going to be perfect. But I've done a lot of these tours. They're amazing. I think that we should not diminish these experiences. These are really amazing experiences that people should really think about investing in. I mean, it's, it's certainly doing less damage to the planet than flying to Italy. Come on, holodeck. That's really what we're asking for. <laughs> well, so Rami, still maintaining his social distance, is announcing last call. Rami just sprayed us all with Lysol. <laughs> I think he put some in my drink because that does not taste like the normal Mount Gay Silver. Because you tested positive. But to our listeners, I, I am still very physically healthy, no symptoms. I have my sense of taste. Yes. I'm not feverish. I'm, I'm fine which I think is what makes this Omicron thing even more dangerous. We are thankful we for are. it. We are indeed. All right. Well, I want to thank you both, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Be safe. Mask up. <laughs>